Yeah, so today we're going to look at meals as a means to grace. Meals as a means to introduce and to experience grace. And um, last week we took a very brief look at the significance of the observance of the feasts that Yahweh instructed his people um, to keep. And we took away from that three um, easy points. And the first one was that whether we like it or not, we are more dependent on God than we realize. And then secondly, it was just also the fact that the feasts helped God's people to look back on the things that Yahweh had done for them in the past, and this gave them meaning for their present, and it also gave them the ability to have a vision prophetically for their future. And then the last point was, don't underestimate what having a meal with someone could lead to when God is present. Um, so this evening we're going to continue, and at the end, when I've finished my ramblings, then um, JP is going to come share with us um, something related to how olives are cured. JP has actually had a fair amount of experience with that. Apparently, it's not something that's easy to do. Um, as we know, olives formed a large part of the eating culture during the times of Jesus, so I'm actually quite looking forward to hearing what JP's got to share with us um, at the end. The next time we do come again, come together again, won't be next week, as, you, as Sarah shared. We will not have evening service next week. Um, we will all be at camp. <laughs> and the week after that, we are hoping that um, Auntie Lucy will come and share with us um, possibly how to make how yogurt gets made and um, how flat bread was made, unleavened bread, I think, in that relation. So she's going to see with that. And the week after that, someone's going to come share with us how bread gets made. Um, Vaughn is going to come. Vaughn is actually quite good at making bread. I don't know if you knew that. Um, yeah, so something to look forward to in the, in the time that lies ahead. Now, you know that um, Woolworths, they sell these um, really nice-tasting um, croissants. Now, now someone um, posted on Twitter how they don't like the, the fact that Woolworths were telling them how many people could be served from one pack of croissants. Um, and so they, they put this on Twitter. They said, Dear Woolworths, it is not necessary for you to decide on our behalf how many people eight croissants should serve. We do not appreciate your tone. <laughs> Hugs. All of us. <laughs> okay, I share that sentiment. I know of people who are able to polish a packet of eight. <laughs> Look at Kirk pointing fingers. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, but you know what? Isn't it annoying how some people think that they can decide for you how many people you can eat with and what the, what the, the details are around that? Now, the story that we're going to be looking at this evening has an element of that in it, and it's actually one of the points that I'd like us to, to focus on in a, in a deeper way. So look out for that theme in the story that we're going to, that we're going to look at this evening. 
So the story that we're going to look at this evening is, a, is believed to be one of the most um, publicized or well-known gospel stories um, in the Bible. Um, one of the best known, and we should all have encountered it at some point in time in our walks following Jesus. At Sunday school, even as small children, into an, our adulthood, and it continues to hold um, great significance. And I would like us this evening, in the light of the fact that it's such a well-known story, and I'm sure that all of us here are quite familiar with this story, um, that we look at it in a, in a different way. Um, and so I would like all of us um, to have an opportunity to share some of the wisdom that you have. Um, around that, so that we can hear what God is saying to us through this old, old story. So I want to encourage you that as we go along, if you have a comment or a question, um, I think we have enough um, elders present to be able to negotiate most of your difficult questions. Um, raise your hand and we'll, we'll, we'll see how we can engage with that. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 19 verses 1 to 10, and it is the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Now, is there someone who'd like to read this for us, someone who's got a Bible? He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Is there anything just right off the bat that stands out to you? Um, maybe themes or associations? Um, that stand out to you that you maybe want to share with us very quickly. It might even be helpful to, if you've got your own Bible, to read a few verses leading up to that um, to help with the context. Anyone like to share something? Oh. Did you hear that? So Sarah finds it interesting that his name was known by Jesus. Is there anything else that stands out to you? He was seeking, so Zacchaeus was, see, was seeking to see Jesus. And then at the end, like Jesus himself says, I came to seek and save the lost. So there's like this mutual pursuit mm. <laughs> happening. Yes, yeah. yes. Oh. Like, I think Jesus just makes such a big statement by saying, I must come and stay at your house. Like, cult culturally, that was such a big thing to go and 
stay in someone's house. It's almost yes. the approving of them as a person. And he was someone that, that the Jews didn't approve of. Mm. Um, Jesus is almost just saying, you're good enough for me to come and stay with you. Yeah. That's, that's also one of the things that stands out to me, is that Jesus invites himself. <laughs> like, if someone, I mean, imagine you're out and someone else invites themselves, hey, I'm coming to your house for supper now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, my lounge is in a mess or whatever the case may be so that was <laughs> it seems like he wanted to see Jesus and Jesus had come to see him um, so let's, let's consider some of the context around around this story, some of the questions like that, um, that we ask, like where did this happen, when, who, why, what, those kinds of things that help us to put together this picture with some more detail than just the plain reading of it. So the first verse tells us that Jesus entered Jericho, but he was just passing through. Um, it wasn't his final destination. He was actually on his way to Jerusalem. And, and, and if we consider, if you follow through, if you read chapters before this, you notice that um, Jesus was actually coming towards the end of his ministry time. And um, he had told his disciples a few times before, leading up to the story, that he will fulfill prophecy by being rejected, put to death, and resurrected. And the last time that he actually told them this was in chapter 18, um, just a few verses before that, in verse 31, where he says, where it says, Then Jesus took the twelve aside and said to them, Look, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, he will be mocked, mistreated, and spat on, they will flog him severely and kill him. Yet on the third day, he will rise again. But the twelve understood none of these things. So all of this, all of these things that Jesus is describing to the disciples were things that would happen to him when he arrived at his destination point, which was Jerusalem. And if we work it out, then we can work out that this interaction that Jesus had with Nazareth was actually about seven days before he was crucified. So Jesus was moving towards that as, as, um, as the culmination of his ministry, as it were. I wonder, as I, I just think about what could have been on Jesus' mind, if he understood so clearly the prophecy prophetically about what he was going to do and what was going to happen to him when he actually arrived in Jerusalem. What do you think Jesus could have felt like with all of that going on? And then he still had time for ministry here in, in Jericho. What do you think? JP says he felt anxious. I think so. Amen. Okay. So, uh, can anyone remember the significance of this particular town, Jericho? 
Um, Jericho had been mentioned <laughs> in past scriptures. It was quite a, quite a significant place. Can you remember anything of significance that happened in the town of Jericho? It was a city that was fortified with a great wall. Remember that? And what, was, what are some of the details of that? There we go. It came down after they marched seven times. <laughs> yeah. So Joey, JP's wife, had an amazing testimony this morning that reminded us of, of that, actually, of Jericho. Um, so it was that. The, the, there was the incident with the walls. Um, Jericho was also around the place where where Joshua prayed and asked that the sun would stand still and the moon would stand still. Remember that story? That was there. There's also Elisha's story about um, this, his miraculous way of purifying the spring of water that, was, um, that, that wasn't healthy and he healed the spring. Um, in Matthew, Jesus healed two blind men close by. Um, and then geographically, quite interestingly, um, Jericho is also, according to the Guinness Book of Records, the lowest city on the planet. So it's the lowest city in the world. It's quite close to, you can see on that map there, quite close to the, the Dead Sea. This year is the Dead Sea. There's Jericho. The Dead Sea is the lowest um, sea on the, in the, on the planet. And Jesus was walking from Jericho up to Jerusalem. So it was a low-lying city, and he was walking up to Jerusalem. It's below sea level, well below sea level. So Jericho was also well-known for being a very affluent city, um, with many wealthy people living there. Um, it was watered by the spring that just constantly gave this um, really lovely-tasting water. They had rose gardens. They had this balsam tree orchard growing there, which it was, the, the city was well known for that. Balsam trees are used to make this expensive aromatic oil. Um, and they also had um, date palm farms um, along in this plain, this flat lying area there. Um, so it was a very affluent city. And, um, and because of its wealth, Jericho was also one of Rome's greatest taxation cities. Um, and so meaning that means that tax collectors could make a lot of money in this town. Um, uh, now, now tax collectors, some, some as, as um, Lindsay was mentioning earlier on, tax collectors, were, they were Jews who had, in a sense, I think how it worked was, you could kind of tender um, to get a franchise, as the kind of terminology that we use today, to become a tax collector in one of Rome's districts. And, um, and once you've done that, Rome gives you a target and says, we want X amount from that particular district. And so as a tax collector, that was your goal. And anything over and above what, what Rome wanted was yours. So they worked on a, um, what is it, a commission basis. 
ser um pau mentiu. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so also, by extension, if a tax collector didn't like you, a tax collector could actually charge you more. Because there wasn't a flat rate that everybody was aware of. The tax collector just knew how much Rome needed. And anything over and above that was his. And so this is why tax collected, collectors were hated as, they, as, as much as they were. Because everybody knew that they took more than what they should take, based on the services and the treatment that they received from Rome. Um, so also remember that Zacchaeus wasn't, he wasn't just an ordinary tax collector. It's quite interesting that it's mentioned there that he was a chief tax collector. So the ordinary tax collectors, probably like Matthew, they would set up booths around the city and they would tax people. Um, he was, Zacchaeus was someone who oversaw those guys. Um, so you can imagine that what he was earning was a compounded amount um, on top of that. Um, so there was kind of a, an extra, I don't like this guy, feeling towards, towards Zacchaeus. So we can imagine then that when, when Jesus visited Zacchaeus, um, Zacchaeus probably had one of the finest houses in Jericho. Just holding the position that he had, based on what we can deduce from what things were like then, he was an extremely wealthy man. He must have had a really nice house. And so probably the food must have been really good as well. I imagine, I imagine that there's, there's a strong possibility that he would have slaughtered something for Jesus' visit. Um, that was the kind of affluence that Zacchaeus, um, the echelon that he found himself in. Um, the Gospels also, about this town, Jericho, the Gospels also seem to indicate that despite the fact that Jericho was a very affluent city, it also had many beggars in the city. There were lots of people around the city on the outskirts where they, where they were allowed to be lots of people begging. So that's kind of what that context would have been like there, where the city that Jesus was, was moving through to get to his destination. Just something interesting as well about the city of Jericho. So the city of Jericho has alongside it there this mountain range. And in that mountain range, if you went to the city of Jericho, there would be in the if you're standing in the city, you can see in the mountainside, there are caves. And there is a, there's a Greek Orthodox monastery that's built in those caves. And that, it is believed, um, is the traditional site where Jesus was tempted by the Satan. Um, so it's kind of right there where it was, it was believed that Jesus um, had this exchange with Satan. So they come into the city, Jesus, and he has this crowd of people around him. And we note that um, the crowd was there from the, from the few verses beforehand, um, the previous chapter. They were following Jesus because Jesus had just healed a blind man. And um, the crowd came from this group of people who witnessed um, Jesus healing this man. 
And so they're following Jesus and his disciples into the city. The man who was, if you read the few verses, the man who had just received healing, he was, he was overjoyed. And he was praising God. And so he must have been the chief um, noisemaker and calling attraction towards uh, Jesus as he was coming in through the city to his destination. Lots of followers. Now we live in an age where having followers has become very important to us. Just think about that for a minute. Having followers is very important to us. You know? Now what do you think would be the reason that the crowds were following Jesus? Was it just their way of hitting the like button? Um, and another question to think about, um, was Jesus just looking for subscribers? What do you think? Jesus had and has good memes. <laughs> okay, there's an there's a underlying truth that Grant has <laughs> shared there. What do you think? There are some obvious ones that you guys all know. Right? They wanted to see. They wanted to see a spectacle. What's this guy going to do next? What else do you think? So there were some haters. Okay. So Jesus, he's, he's passing through the town. He's got this crowd of people. And it says there that Zacchaeus wanted to see him. And so what he did was he climbed this sycamore tree. In verses 2 and 3 now, we, we find out that Zacchaeus is a, if we use the, the, the words that are used there, he's a chief tax collector, he's rich, he's trying to see who Jesus was, but he's, he's a short man. Um, now based on these descriptions of, of him, what do we think we know about Zacchaeus? People didn't think much of him. It's <laughs> a good one, Julia. <laughs> what, what else do you think? He had a reputation. So Jesus... He, he wanted to see Jesus, but he knew that he wasn't part of the crowd. The crowd wouldn't invite him in. So, so Zacchaeus, I think, is short, as, as Julia pointed out for us, not just in physical stature, but also in terms of his moral standing. And everybody knew this about him. And I think that's something that we see based on the crowd's reaction. So, so there's, this is the, the, the image that they have of, of, of this guy who also wants to see um, this man, Jesus. So this here is a picture of, um, of a sycamore tree in the city of Jericho. 
the locals believe that it is the tree that Zacchaeus climbed. Um, there's a plaque there in, um, in Hebrew that, that kind of communicates that. It, the tree apparently has been dated and is in the region of about 2,000 years old. Um, it also is situated along the main road of Jericho. So if Jesus had been coming through the town along that particular way, if this is the tree, then um, he would have come by there. So yeah, this is also apparently one of, one of the main tourism attractions in, in the town. Um, so... <laughs> Jared wants an autograph from the tree. So, so yeah, so that gives you an idea of what, the, of what the tree could look like. As a matter of scale, there's a man standing next door. You can see um, the tree actually has nice branches that lean out that would allow you good vantage if someone were passing by beneath. So there's this interaction that Jesus has with Zacchaeus as he's, as he's passing by that way. And as we know, Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' house. And he says the words, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So Jesus, in that moment, actually, he takes on the role of host. And he takes that role from Zacchaeus, and he assumes it. And he, in a sense, invites Zacchaeus to this communion at his own house. Now, I think understanding what Jesus is doing with this invitation is very important for us as we, as we think about this theme of what um, the meals with Jesus can teach us um, about Jesus, about how we can be better disciples now, sharing a meal and hospitality with someone back then was viewed as being a boundary marker. So, if sharing a meal with someone is this boundary marker, you are, e you are either in or out. You are either on this side of the boundary or you are on the outside of that boundary. And the boundary marker for the people in biblical times was very important culturally, relationally, religiously, even traditionally. And who you would share a meal with was a clear boundary line. So you would know if someone invited you for a meal to their place, you're in. You are accepted in that culture. And so this is why it was such a big deal that Jesus was described as the son of man who came eating and drinking, as a glutton and a drunkard who ate with prostitutes and tax collectors. Because in the, in the culture of the day, then that statement would have been a way to demean Jesus. Because Jesus was, in effect, shifting that boundary. And, it was, and Jesus was someone who challenged people who wouldn't shift that boundary. Now, there's this New Testament scholar named Scott Barchi 
who writes, he says that it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Middle East and Mediterranean basin. The, the early church called having meals together table fellowship. Now, in the first century, mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment and being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had actually become something like a ceremony, richly symbolic of friendship, of intimacy, of unity. And so, in the case of a betrayal or unfaithfulness towards anyone with whom one had shared the table, this was viewed particularly reprehensibly. So if you did that, that was a serious, serious thing within your relationship. Now on the other hand, when persons were estranged, when people had, you had lost that connection with people, a meal invitation was a way to open up the way to reconciliation. And people understood this. So they understood that if, that if me and Mike, we had had a disagreement years ago, and that's how we left our relationship, if he invited me tomorrow, I knew he wants to reconcile. And people understood this. And this is what Jesus was doing here with Zacchaeus. Jesus himself was opening a way to reconciliation with Zacchaeus. And so the crowd who was standing there watching this would have understood that and the, the, the disgust with that was expressed simply by saying there, as it was written, as Luke records it, the crowd grumbled. So there's that, if you think back to that, those eight croissants. There it is. There's this, there's this German theologian who says that in the Middle East, even today, to invite a person to a meal was an offer of peace, of brotherhood or sisterhood and forgiveness. And sharing a table with someone actually meant sharing life with them. Now in Judaism in particular, table fellowship and hospitality mean fellowship before God. God is included within that time of fellowship. And so coming back to Jesus here and his interaction with Zacchaeus um, and this invitation that he had placed before him, Jesus in front of the crowd here again was messing with their boundary markers. He was challenging the thinking, the culture, the way of being of the day. And the crowd were not happy about it. And they tell us there, as I said a minute ago, that they grumbled. You know, Jesus was supposed to be, in their eyes, a leader. He was supposed to be, in the eyes of these Jews, a teacher. He was supposed to be a rabbi who upheld the traditions. He was supposed to be someone 
that could make sure that everything went the way it was supposed to go according to them. And so according to them, this man Zacchaeus, and according to the way things were supposed to go, he was not the kind of people that Jesus was supposed to be eating with. They were very upset about this. There's the certain theologian also that says that Jesus could actually have gotten himself killed because of the people he ate with. People felt so strongly about this. Because in that culture of that time, as we know, Jesus ate with all the wrong people. He ate with prostitutes. He ate with tax collectors. But we see here for, for Rabbi Jesus... Meals were not, in his understanding, a boundary marker. But for him, it was a sign of God's great welcome into the kingdom. Not a way to keep people out, but rather a way to invite people in. Now, as we think about that, you've got that picture in your mind of Jesus and Zacchaeus, and they are having this interaction, and Jesus is wanting to have this interaction in the presence of the crowd because he was doing something not only for Zacchaeus, he was also doing something for the crowd who was present. What do you think are the prostitutes and the tax collectors of our time today? Just think about that. Who would be the people that we would not want on this side of our boundary. When I, when I read the story, there's a, there's a large section of the story that we're not going to get to. This issue of restitution. We'll leave that one to unpack another time. But there's an amazing lesson here that I find deeply challenging as someone who's supposed to be following this rabbi. Someone who's supposed to be someone who stands out from the crowd, who effectively does things that might make the crowd grumble. And I find that very challenging. Now in this story here, we are, we are introduced, and I think I need to close now, we are introduced to, to three characters. We are introduced to Jesus, to Zacchaeus, and the crowd. Now, to add another question of challenge to that, who would you say we are most like? Are we like Zacchaeus, who lived a selfish life, but realized that he needed to be seen by the Savior? Because the Savior had come to see him. Are we like Zacchaeus? Or are we like the crowd? Who go along with the status quo of the day. And have no issue with excluding people. And this then makes people feel left out. Ostracized. Are we like the crowd? Or are we like Jesus, who doesn't fear going against the status quo of society, 
in his pursuit of bringing kingdom to come. And he's willing to sit down and have a meal with those who he had come to seek and to save. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have come to seek and to save the lost. We thank you that you sent Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that, that as you have called us into your kingdom, as you have called us to become your ambassadors, you empower us with the presence of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that even in our weakness, you are able to use us. And it is when we feel at our weakest, it is actually when we are at our strongest. Father, as we go into this week, as we allow this challenge to sit with us, we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would continue to enrich us, continue to remind us also that you came to seek us, and that you would want us to become your agents in bringing your kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.